Welcome to the Practical Tax Talk podcast. I'm your host, Lovey Edwards, and today we're talking virtual currency, specifically cryptocurrency. I'm so glad you're here. Let's jump right in. This question appeared for the first time on the 2019 tax return. At any time during the tax year, did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency? Taxpayers must indicate whether or not they engaged in virtual currency transactions by responding yes or no to that question. I can tell you as a tax professional, the overwhelming response that I received to that question is, what is virtual currency? So let me answer that question according to the IRS definition. The IRS defines virtual currency as a digital representation of value other than a representation of the US dollar or a foreign currency, real currency, that functions as a unit of account, a store of value, and a medium of exchange. Well, let's break that definition down. U.S. dollar or foreign currency is known as real currency or fiat currency. In the United States, the U.S. dollar is backed by the U.S. government and is accepted as legal tender. As legal tender, the U.S. dollar must be accepted by merchants when offered in payment of a debt. Virtual currency is not real currency or fiat currency in the United States. Virtual currency does not have legal tender status. It is not controlled or backed by the U.S. government like fiat currency. Some virtual currencies are convertible, which means that they have an equivalent value in real currency or function as a substitute for real currency. Virtual currency is spendable. Virtual currency is transacted through certain software applications and digital wallets. The IRS estimates that there are over 2,000 virtual currency. Cryptocurrency is a type of virtual currency. Cryptocurrency uses cryptography to record secure transactions digitally on a distributed ledger such as blockchain. Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum are popular types of cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies can be used to buy goods or services or held as an investment. The use case for crypto has expanded and evolved to an ecosystem since Bitcoin was first launched in 2009. Well, let's explore this ecosystem a little bit further. Joining the conversation today is John Wingate, a crypto expert who aspires to and is changing the world by freeing the world with a new economic system. Welcome, John. I am so glad you're here. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Well, I wanted to get started right off the bat about something that was added to the 2019 tax return. It's a question about buying, selling, or exchanging virtual currency. And so this is what it reads. At any time during the year, 
Did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency? And I can tell you as a tax professional, the look that I receive from taxpayers <laughs> is one of fright, like virtual currency. What is that? So I wanted you to help us understand what virtual currency is and specifically what cryptocurrency is. Sure. So, you know, as far as a virtual currency, I think there are examples. You know, my background is in retail technology for, you know, retailers, consumer brands, B2B, B2C. And when I think of virtual currency, I would say that you really have, you know, this, we, we were talking about uh, gift cards and things like that. Those can be considered virtual currencies. Now, when we're talking about virtual currency in the sense of cryptocurrency, right? What is a cryptocurrency? How does it work? What kind of just a quick briefing on what that is. So when you have a virtual cryptocurrency, it's a, a form of economic, you know, it's an economic system that lives in a cryptographic, cryptographically stable system. And so what it does is, um, not trying to go too deep here, but your value that you put into the system is securitized by a mathematical equation that everybody in the system who participates has to adhere to. And that mathematical equation is what makes your value that you've stored, whether you've uh, taken dollars or ruples lira, whatever you've taken and put it into that system, the security behind it ensures that the value continues to be maintained by a ledger of cryptographic hashes. So that's essentially when you look at all blockchains, the, the way they function is with that crypto signature. And that's why it's called cryptocurrency, because it's cryptographically securitized. Great. And can you break down a little bit further the blockchain private keys, public keys, and sure. how all of that works. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's just start really quick with kind of the concept of the ecosystem. Okay. So the way the ecosystem works is you start off with a wallet, a, a application on your phone. You can download, there's many of them out there. You have Coinbase, you have Trust Wallet, you have MetaMask. These are some of the bigger names. Soon you'll have the bank social wallet, which we're releasing in our newest version of the app. But the wallet is the holder of your public and private keys, okay? And it's really a view to the blockchain. So your public key is what you give people. That's essentially like your address to say, send me money here. Here's my public key. And that's publicly available. Anybody can see it. It's viewable on the blockchain. And it basically shows an account of everything you've ever done, everything you've bought, everything you've sold, everything you're holding. That's what your public key is. It's your address. It's something you can give to the, to the world at large. The private key is something that is stored on your device, or you can actually take it off your device and store it you know, in what they called cold storage, which means it's stored off the internet. And you can write it down literally on a piece of paper, or there are devices like Trezor wallets or Ledger wallets that will store it off the blockchain itself and off a computer, something that's stored to or connected to the internet. But at the end of the day, your private key is private because you do not want to send that out there. If somebody gets access to your private key, then the potentially, just like if somebody got a hold of your debit card, right? That's the yes. similar concept. You want to hold your debit card. I often uh, talk about the keys to your house. 
If you don't want anybody to come into your house, don't make a lot of copies of it and don't leave your keys just hanging around where you don't know where they are giving it to people. So that's the concept of of private and public keys. And so when you have your wallet and you're transacting with it, let's say me and you were going to perform a transaction. I owed you a hundred dollars. And so now I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars. You would send me your public key. If we were on Ethereum, you would send me your public Ethereum key. I would get that public Ethereum key. I would put it into my wallet. And then I would say, send a hundred dollars. I would push send and you would get the hundred dollars after anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes of processing time, depending on how uh, clogged the network is. And that's how it works. So basically you're the, where crypto comes in is your wallet key addresses, both your public and your private keys. Those are what are used in the cryptographic hashing sequence to keep track of what you have and what somebody else has. Okay. So that public key, again, very safe. You can put it out there. There have been zero instances. I'll say that again, zero instances on the Ethereum blockchain specifically and and Bitcoin for that matter of somebody hacking into your public key. So if you put your public key out there, people put them out there for donations and, and whatever. There has been zero instances of anybody hacking, brute force hacking a public key to this point. And that's after, you know, Bitcoin at this point is 11 years old, 12 years old, and Ethereum is about seven, six, seven years old. So it's pretty amazing that the cryptography behind these things is such that there's never been a hack of that nature. I think that that is totally amazing because, you know, back in the day, anything associated with uh, cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin, was always about some type of nefarious event. And things (laughs) seem to have evolved since then. And can you explain the evolution of using cryptocurrency, you know, from where it started and now what the thinking is? Yeah, absolutely. So, you you know, the first thing you got to think about here is that this is a very, very new technology still. Okay. Started in 2009, but really people didn't start using it until about 2010, late 2010, 2011. I'll just kind of explain my story and that'll follow along with the evolution because I got in very early with it. Initially, when, when Bitcoin started back in 2009, 2010, the only way to acquire Bitcoin was either through mining it where you just set up a computer. And in the early days, you could do it on just a a CPU. Then it progressed to graphics cards. And then now you have to have specialized miners to mine it. But in the early days, really the only ways to get it was either you had to know somebody, why the proliferation on the dark web was happening early on in the early days. And so in the early days, if you didn't know how to get it and you didn't mine it, you couldn't get Bitcoin. And that was one of the things that kept a lot of people from getting it. And I'll tell you a story about how I bought my first uh, Bitcoin. I wasn't doing nefarious acts on the dark web, but I wanted Bitcoin. And so I went on the dark web and I found somebody who was selling Bitcoin and I went to Western Union and sent them $35 with my wallet address. And then I went home, I rushed home and then waited three days and then I got my Bitcoins. And so after that i progressed into mining but you know bitcoin was really kind of this thing that nobody understood what and why let me not say nobody but a very few people understood right. what and why they would want to use it and then and even me like i told all my friends about it and i was e- extremely excited to know that there was this securitized manner of money transfer that didn't rely on any centralized authority 
that was the real big thing for me. But around 2012, 2013, it started getting boring because it wasn't doing anything. Sure, it was rising a little bit, but it wasn't really doing anything. It wasn't innovating. People weren't really picking it up at the pace that I thought. And it wasn't until 2015, 2016, when Ethereum came out with the concept of smart contracts that I got re-engaged and got very excited. So we have the first evolution was Bitcoin, the cryptographic securitization and decentralization of a store of value, whatever that was. I mean, at the beginning, it wasn't really money. It was just people's belief. You were storing the people's belief that there was a, a store of value there. Okay. There were no centralized exchanges back then. And when you had when you had Ethereum come along in 2015, 2016, they really changed the concept behind what cryptocurrency could do because they introduced what's called the smart contract. And the smart contract gave you and I the ability to codify a set of specific performance that said, if I do this, you do this. And typically what it's used for is you know, transactionally to say, you know, if I if I put this much money in, there are escrow services, there are different tax you know, not in the sense of IRS, but it could evolve there, right? I mean, I, I've seen right, a lot of this right. stuff. It it definitely will. We'll talk about that in a second. But you came with the smart contract. And when the smart contract came out, that's when things really started to get interesting because for the first time, not only did you have this decentralized storage of value, but now you also had the ability to put specific performance behind it if then else, and codify it to the point to where there's a concept in the blockchain uh, in smart contracts called immutability, where the smart contract, once it's written, it can never change. So somebody can't go in and after you've made a bunch of transactions within that ecosystem, go and change the parameters without your knowledge, right? right. Because it's all codified, you know. So I say all the time that I don't believe that Ponzi schemes can exist in in cryptocurrency. And the one reason is, is because in a Ponzi scheme, I give my money to you. And then I wonder and hope <laughs> that it's being used for something that I can't see. I can never see that. So you could give it to a hundred people and then give me back $5. I don't know where you got the $5 you're giving me. Right. And I don't know where you, you took my money. That doesn't exist in blockchain and in crypto. You can see 100% of where everything is going and you can make a, a quick decision. And as these, these technologies get more advanced, we'll be able to do that. And I'll talk about that here in a second. But that was 2015. Smart contracts came online. And what you're seeing now in 2017, 2018, we had a big ICO. Everybody was doing initial coin offerings. Everybody was trying to get rich. So you had this big rise and crash. And I compare that to the internet of the late 90s, where you had a bunch of companies coming in, didn't know what they were doing, just wanted to take advantage of the internet boom. Uh, and then you had the crash of 2000. And from that crash, you had all the big names come out. You had the Amazons of the world and you had all you had this big move mm -hmm. of traditional systems taking on the, the, the challenge of moving themselves to the internet. We have the same thing going on here. You know, 2019 and 2020, there was really a, a significant ramp up in the amount of not just money, but people that flowed into to cryptocurrencies. I think right now we're at over $2 trillion worth of locked value in these ecosystems. And the one, the one thing that we're waiting for right now, the renaissance we're, we're in the middle of, and this is what we're working on at Bank Social, is there has to be a intuitive, secure and comfort 
for the average person to pick up a phone or pick something up, like you asking me about public and private keys, you technically shouldn't have to know this much about, you know, it's just like in the old days, you know, back right. in 2000, you see what I mean? Like yes. if you would have had to say, Hey, to get into your chase account, go do these 15 things. People aren't going to do it. And they had to do that back then. And that's why they didn't use their chase account until like 2004, 2005, it didn't start to get big. And we're in that transformational phase right now where it's going to become a, process of simplification and onboarding people with more intuitive it's a bunch of you know for lack of a better explanation it's a bunch of kids out here and and you know rebels <laughs> making making applications but that's very very quickly starting to evolve and we're seeing more businesses more more people with business backgrounds like myself and and you know, technology backgrounds who are wanting to build this bridge from what we're calling web 2.0 to web 3.0, which is what blockchain is built on is web 3.0, this decentralized concept where there's no uh, central authority maintaining 100% of everything. And that's perfect. So I think you bring up some very key points. You know, one thing that I always expect in terms of cryptocurrency or anything new, it's just like when you go to the store and let's say I bought, I don't know, I went to Cox Cable and I received a new cable box. And when I open up the box, it has the, the cable box. It has some cables. It has a get started guide. The get started guide includes a listing and pictures of everything I need to make that cable box work and to install it. I don't see that same thing with cryptocurrency or, you know, the, the Bitcoins or Ethereum or Litecoin or all the different coin types, all coins. And so I wanted to get your take on education. And like you said, you know, that's a very big component, I think, to help people get comfortable and to use it. And I think for it to become more mainstream. So what's your take and what's your position on education. So that's a very interesting point. I think education is very important. And so at Bank Social, we do have an education series where we teach people about cryptocurrencies from the most simplest concepts to the more advanced concepts. But I, aside from education, um, you know, and, and really education, I feel, let me talk about education a little bit more. Education, I feel, is important from keeping yourself secure in the space right now. Because if you come in right now, you're still a, what I would call early adopter, I think. You're, we're still on the evangelist phase where you have a bunch of evangelists talking about crypto and you're starting to see like, <laughs> frankly, when I started Bank Social, what, what was the catalyst to that is my mom called me six months ago and said, hey, I'm buying Dogecoin. And so I said, okay. I said, okay, it's time for me to get back in seriously into, into crypto and, and develop something because I need to develop something for people like my mom. And that's where I think education blends with intuitive process and, and procedure. So just like you said, we don't want crypto in my eyes to be a cable box that you open and have to configure. I think that for me, and what I see as the future of crypto, I want it to be more like the Chase app that you download. It does a you know facial face ID, and then you log in, and now you have access to everything. So it's building those, not only education, but in hand-in-hand, in hand, building more intuitive things. Because I can tell you that from our experience, you know, at, 
with our with our brand bank social it it doesn't say that we're blockchain so we're not getting all these crypto enthusiasts we're getting people that are more normal people interested in the bridge between crypto and a and a traditional type of uh financial instrument. And so we get that question all the time of how do we make it easier? Because we have the education, we have the onboarding, we have the support teams, we have all of that. And we still have that gap in, you know, if, if it takes six steps and somebody doesn't want to learn six steps because it only takes them one step now to log into their chase app, the likelihood of them going and getting educated on it is just yeah. not as high. I'm not going to say that there aren't people that won't do it, but it's just not as high. So if we make the onboarding process more intuitive and simple, it has to be extremely simple is the key there. Then education works hand in hand where you just now teaching people how to feel safe and secure and more so how to not get scammed by the, all these other scams out there. Cause once they get in, they get a taste for it. It's like, you know, it's like a people want it once they get a right, taste of it. Let me right. just say that. <laughs> right. This concludes part one of the conversation I had with John Wingate. Listen to the next episode to catch the rest of the conversation with John, where we discuss the growing popularity of decentralized finance. DeFi, and its impact on banking and financial systems as we know them. John also provides tips to begin your journey into cryptocurrency. Today's tax tips are brought to you by our sponsor, Ceteris LLC. Ceteris provides tax preparation, planning, and resolution services to individuals and small businesses by providing intelligence beyond the numbers. Remember to answer yes to the question about virtual currency on the tax return if at any time during the tax year you received, sold, sent, exchanged, or otherwise acquired any financial interest in any virtual currency. This includes receiving coins for free in your digital wallet via an airdrop as a reward for completing a survey or opening an account or receiving new cryptocurrency when a hard fork occurs, or receiving cryptocurrency as compensation for performing services as an employee or independent contractor or freelancer. Answer yes if you purchase goods or services using your cryptocurrency or you exchange cryptocurrency for another cryptocurrency, or check yes if you received virtual currency through inheritance. Thank you for listening to Practical Tax Talk. Each episode will feature a tax topic with or without an interview, as well as actionable tips and strategies that you can implement to take control of and manage your tax situation. Practical Tax Talk is produced and hosted by me, Lovey Edwards. Remember to live life with intention and purpose.